What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Carrie Goldstein is vice president executive director of publicity and senior editor at Simon and Schuster where he leads the Simon and Schuster publicity department and acquires select works of fiction and nonfiction. Among the bestsellers whose publications he has overseen at Simon & Schuster are Hard Choices by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, A Curious Mind by film and television producer Brian Grazer, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. On this episode, Carrie talks about his career and even dives deep on his reading process. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Carrie, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? Thank you, Sean. I'm well. Yourself? I am doing very well. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know the listeners are going to get a lot, a lot out of this, and you've had an interesting career. You've been able to do some, some wonderful things in your field. But I want to know, can you just give the listeners kind of a broad overall view of what your current role is? Yeah, I'm currently the vice president and executive director of publicity at Simon & Schuster. Uh, I have a second title as well, which is senior editor. So I wear two hats. I would say the overwhelming majority of my time is spent running our media program for our authors. Um, I manage a department of 14 publicists at our flagship imprint at Simon & Schuster. So largely I'm responsible for... Um, signaling to the media what our publishing priorities are and signaling to the publicists who report to me what our media priorities are. Um, I myself am involved, obviously, with, with all of the books, but more directly engaged with some of our higher profile authors and, and, uh, and campaigns. And then on the editorial side, uh, I'm an acquisitions editor. So I publish about roughly three books a year with a focus on literary fiction, um, and I do some narrative nonfiction as well. But a typical editor here might publish as many as 12 to 15 books a year. So I have a much lighter load. Um, my value to the company leans more heavily on the work I do for the media side, uh, which is which is a luxury because it means I get to really publish in my areas of passion as an editor. And that's why I sort of stay in my literary lane very happily, very comfortably. And, you know, I'm not obligated to do much. So I get to find the things I love um, and engage, you know, with them on a, on a, on a level you know, that that's more in line with the kinds of things I might read, even if I wasn't working on them. So that's a really happy place to be editorially. So, I mean, it sounds like you must have plenty of free time. You're not, you're not balancing a lot here at work. I mean, gosh, you've, you've got a lot of titles there, a lot of responsibilities, but I want to start more at the origin story. You mentioned kind of the love you might have for, for certain books. And I mean, to be in this role, I have to assume you had an immense fascination for books growing up. And when did you first develop this fascination? 
Well, like most kids, you know, I, I loved story time. I also happened to be a pretty, um, um, I was a liar. <laughs> I told a lot. I told a lot of lies, you know. And had my parents, who are lovely, um, been more attuned to what was going on, they might have nurtured that in me as a sort of creative act uh, rather than punish me. Um, but you know, the lying persisted, um, and I found myself kind of fascinated with uh, creative storytelling. But the real, the real kicker was was something rather unusual. I, I, I had tested well, and I. It was you know, a grade ahead in certain things and, you know, in honors in other things where I was in my grade, but I didn't go to class and I didn't do any work. And while my friends, you know, in high school were going to keg parties, I was playing in a band that was traveling to colleges and universities and playing at frat parties. Um, so I never went to class. I was, you know, I would, I would sneak out and go play with my band in the house in the basement and practice. And so eventually, you know, junior year, the guidance counselor sits down with me and he says, okay, so not only are you not going to get into the schools you deserve to get into, you may not get into any schools at all at like a 2.2 GPA or something. I just didn't go to class. So what happened was I, I got very lucky because a boyfriend of my sister's had applied. Uh, he was, you know, a few years older than I was, but when he was at the same place in school, he had applied to this honors program at the local community college. And this program was designed for kids who maybe could get into a great school like Georgetown, but wanted to go to Stanford or something like this, right? And so they would take their they would leave, they didn't go to the high school, they would go to the community college for their senior year where they would take both their senior year classes and freshman year classes of college and then they would transfer as a sophomore to the university they wanted to go to. So I had to interview my way into the program because my grades didn't justify it. But you know, long story short, I got accepted to this program and suddenly I'm taking philosophy, psychology, and all sorts of literature classes. And it was around this time I discovered, you know, as any 17-year-old might, um, writers like, you know, Kerouac and Ginsburg, or more importantly, Kerouac turned me on to Thomas Wolfe, and not Tom Wolfe, but, you know, Asheville, North Carolina, Tom, Thomas Wolfe. And suddenly I had this revelation through the writers I was reading at the time, um, and for that matter, the philosophy too, and even psychology, that, that these books I was reading weren't just about uh, somebody else's stories. They were about me. You know, every one of these books I was reading was about me, and it just sort of changed the whole game for me. And so I wound up going to, uh, to NYU um, here in New York. Uh, I'm a New Yorker, born and bred. Um, and um, I wound up going to NYU where I focused on poetry and religions and, you know, another big winner. Like, what am I going to do with that? Maybe maybe teach, you know, um, but a friend of mine or a friend's wife now, um, had, uh, had done an internship with a great literary publishing house called Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. And during my senior year of college, uh, my final semester, I was preparing for an oral thesis and I got this internship and I wound up being hired out of, you know, in, out of the internship and into the publisher while I was still a student. And so suddenly I'm, I'm getting ready to finish my diploma and I'm an assistant in a publicity department, you know, working with Nobel prize winning poets like Seamus Haney and Derek Walcott. Um, Ted Hughes was still living. Joseph Brodsky had just passed away. I mean, just the poets I had been studying not months earlier, um, I was now speaking with on the phone. 
Um, and, and, and the irony is, you know, the, the, the poets sold so few copies that they would give them to the assistant. So I was, you know, really sort of in my, in my element. Um, and it just sort of clicked for me and, um, and I just got hooked. I mean, it's funny. It, it first sounded like you might turn out to be a con man and then hopefully a rock star. Side note, what was the band's name? Oh, God. We had a great name that we turned into a terrible name. So the first name of the band was The Well. The Well is actually kind of a cool name. We thought it was terrible. And so we, we changed the name of the band to uh, there was a street. There was a street we used to take when we would leave class and go from the high school to my house. And it was called Pride's Crossing. It was this back back road. So, so the band was called Pride's Crossing. It was a terrible name. Um, but there you have it. Were you guys any good? But, you know, uh, you know, we were pretty good. I, I, one of the guys, the guitar player in the band, who's still one of my best friends, he was gifted. Um, I was maybe at best talented, and the difference between the two is enormous. And I think one of the key differences between the two is that he loved to play all the time. I mean, he was just constantly had his axe in his hand, and he was always fiddling, always noodling, always practicing always pushing it. And I like to, you know, have fun and I love to play with the band and I love to rehearse, but you know, when I wasn't playing, I was doing other things. And that's the difference, you know, and that applies to anything. Um, but you said something else that I think is worth, is worth putting a pin in and coming back to later, which is you said, you know, I, it sounds like I ran the risk of being a con man. And I wouldn't say that anything I do now as the head of publicity is deceptive, <laughs> but there is something of the con man in making the kinds of deals um, we make um, in media um, and negotiating the kinds of packages we try to with our partners at the networks and in the papers and the stuff like that. So, you know, a little bit of um, a little bit of lying as a kid turns into a, uh, a useful tool in figuring out how to pivot and spin and give your campaign, you know, the, the little boost it needs to, to get what you want. So, I mean, then looking at your tool chest, do you think you have more book smarts or street smarts? Um, some, somebody in the office the other day, you know, I'm not an Ivy league kid, although I didn't exactly, you know, go without, you know, no, neither am I deprived, but, um, but, uh, you know, we have no, no dearth of, of Harvard and Yale, of Yale folks here. Um, one of them, one of my colleagues recently referred to me, he said, you know, he's like, you, he's like, you, you're cut from a different cloth. You're a street fighter. Um, so I, so I have a little bit of that, but I think, um, but I think it also is, it, it's a useful, you know, it's a useful character. So I'm interested kind of in, in this progression for you and how your life interactions kind of came to this culmination and, and you really got into the books and the poetry and, and how that led to where you are now. Was it a sudden change you mentioned while you were at school that all of a sudden your mind started to shift? Was it a really quick change or, or did it take some time? Uh, it, it took some time. Um, because I don't know that I had the, you know, there weren't really books in my home. It's an interesting thing, you know, people who, who, who grow up in homes full of books and people who don't. And yet when I look back on it now, you know, my parents are the least literary people in the world. Right. And yet they're, they're bright, they're bright people. Um, but they're not book lovers. They're not quote unquote intellectuals or anything like that. So I didn't grow up in an environment that sort of, you know, put that front and center. Um, both my parents worked and, you know, they, my dad certainly loved to watch me play ball, but, um, but it wasn't that kind of home. Um, and yet, uh, they were both always reading and, you know, there are studies, um, that show, I don't I, I can't cite them, but, you know, I've read about studies that show, um, 
children who see their parents read for pleasure are more likely to become readers than children who don't. Um, now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it sounds good. And and I think that's true of, of, of my experience. You know, my, my, my father, who I've never heard talk about a single book he read, always had a book in his hand. And they were, you know, cheap airport, you know, novels, but, um, but he was reading. Um, and that, that does something. So, you know, I don't know, it clicked and it seems like it's overnight, but it was probably a, a slower transition. And, and, you know, also when you're young, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have children and books is not exactly a growth business, you know, so l- looking back through the framework of my life as it exists now with, you know, the world of tuition and, and, and a future and, and retirement ahead of me, you know, maybe I would have made different decisions, but I'm, I'm glad I wasn't thinking about things that way because I would have missed out on a lot. I don't think that really answers your question. It's hard to, it's hard to know how slow or quickly it happened, but one day you look, you know, you look back and you're no longer going to be a baseball player, but you are in fact doing something else and you've been doing it now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in this business 20, 23 years. Um, and I don't know when that happened, but you know, I, I, I was for a long time, the youngest person in the room. Um, and then one day you look up and, and by a margin, you're not. I would love to go deeper on that being the youngest in the room. How do you handle that? both kind of having that fear of everyone else in that room superior to you? And then how do you stand out and make the most of your time? Well, the first humiliation I had about being the youngest in the room was at a business breakfast I was invited to when I was maybe 20. And we were doing some partnership for National Poetry Month. Uh, and there were two two groups we were partnering with. There was the Academy of American Poets and another group called, I want to say, Teachers and Writers. And, um, and my boss, who was the head of the of the department, invited me to this breakfast. And of course, everybody's sitting around and the waiter comes and the first person they ask, you know, what 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 I'll be having is me, and I order uh, you know an, an omelet and toast and bacon and an orange juice. <laughs> and, they, and then they go around to the rest of the people at the table, who are you know all these forty-year-old guys, um, and everybody orders a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm totally mortified, and of course they're they're looking at me with complete and total empathy. They're like, no, 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 eat. We know what you make. <laughs> um, so you know, but but moreover, I think um, being the youngest in the room is a good thing. A little bit like being a, a younger sibling, you know, because you're forced to 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 work above your your weight, you know, and and you have to you know, work twice as hard to keep up. And there were some editors when I was at FSG, that's for Strauss and Giroux, who, who were not only editing these great writers, but, you know, on the side were writing articles for The Atlantic or doing this or doing that, you know, and there was this one editor, um, Paul, uh, Paul Eli, a great writer, um, and now he's actually a full-time writer and, and, uh, and an academic. And he, um, you know, he would flatter me in the hallway by stopping me to talk and assuming I had any clue what he was talking about. And I would just sort of nod and listen and, you know, and then afterwards you go and look it up and figure out what it is I don't get. And so I think like being a younger sibling, being the youngest in the room is, is, is a healthy thing. Um, a little scary, but, uh, but makes you work hard. I mean, did you embrace that opportunity? I mean, it sounds like looking back, you kind of understood the position you were in and the opportunities that this would lead to if you succeeded there, right? Uh, yes and no. Um, there are, there are certainly colleagues and friends of mine who I've grown up with in the business who may be immersed more completely in the quote unquote scene, you know, guys who hung out with 
more writers, more so-called literary characters, editors, people who were sort of out at readings, out at parties, out at events. And that wasn't so much my deal. And maybe that that was a carryover from my experience in, in you know, growing up where something of the group doesn't work for me. And maybe it's you know, ironically, maybe some form of like introversion where even my job is, you know, I could sit and talk to you and be gregarious, right? Or my job is to talk to crowds or to people and I'm involved. But at the same time, I just, I, I, being in a scene um, somehow doesn't totally work for me. And so I may have even missed opportunities that other friends of mine had. And I think it, you know, looking back may have been a good thing for me, um, but I certainly felt like I was on the outside of a lot of stuff. Um, so, you know, from the outside, it would look like I'm an insider, but from the inside, I felt quite a bit outside the deep inside. Speaking of being on the inside, how frequently and how often right now are you reading? If we're looking at a week, how much time do you spend? So I, I, a lot. Um, I do two different kinds of readings. There's the reading I do, three different kinds, really. There's the reading I do for work, um, and those would be either the books we're publishing or the manuscripts on submission, whether they're for me or other editors that I'm that I'm reading along with. Um, so there's a lot of work reading. Let's call it, you know, a book a week sometimes. Um, and then there's the reading for me. And if I'm not reading for me, I start to get very cranky. And so I create these projects for myself. Um, where I get sort of really invested in either a particular writer or a particular time or a particular subject. And so I do a lot of that reading in the mornings um, on my way to and from work or on the weekends when nobody in the house is up yet. And so I make sure that happens. And then there's the reading that is probably not remotely unique to me right now, which is just, you know, a sort of obsessive news reading. And part of that is for my work um, because I have to know who's covering what. And I also have to know because of the kinds of books we publish, what's happening in the news. You know, I mean, I've got to be a sort of, I've got to be up to speed on a lot of different stuff, but at the same time, I'm also, you know, following politics right now, not, not unlike the way I followed baseball, you know, as a 12 year old, I mean, I kind of know the stats and know the players and know who's in and who's, who's out. And it's, you know, to what end, I don't know. It's probably not healthy, but I do a bit of that. <laughs> I would love to know your actual process for, for your own enjoyment and, and the reading you do there. Are you taking notes? Are you just kind of enjoying the book and letting your mind escape? Yeah, I, I, uh, you're kind of hitting my geek spot right now. And so I do take notes. I read every book with a pencil. I, you know, I underline, I put notes in the margins. I'll find something on page 67 that calls back to page 25 and I'll make a note on 67 that says C25 and you go back to 25 and I've got a circle around it and a note about 67. And <laughs> my, my wife doesn't get it. You know, I teach every now and again. And so I, I adjunct occasionally, I haven't done it in a few years, but I adjunct at the MFA program program at Columbia. Um, and I also actually teach a, a, a writer's retreat in New Hampshire once a year with a, a novelist I'm friendly with. And when I lecture in those places, you know, we usually, if it's in a classroom, obviously you're talking about a book, but at the retreat as well, we pick a book. And, um, and I get to I get to read a book or teach a book in the way I learned as a student. And there, there's something about that immersion um, that just keeps me very happy. That's my happy place. I'm absolutely fascinated hearing about that. Do you always finish your books? Nope. <laughs> so I think, I think I a lot of people struggle with that. I was talking to my wife about this the other day, and she just has to finish a book. And I'm like, it's okay. Just let go. It's not good. 
Yeah, no, I don't feel that way. Um, I don't feel that way about series on TV either. You know, if if, if I'm reading something and it, I just don't like it, I'll stop. I mean, I'll try to read enough that I feel like I'm making a decision for a good reason. And by the way, you know, years will go by and somebody will either you'll pick something up accidentally or somebody will turn you on to something you thought you didn't like and you might return to it. Um, but uh, no, I don't have I don't have the time. I mean, like you, I um I, I have little kids. I have you know a personal life. I you know I, I don't have time. So then how'd you develop this note-taking process? Probably as a student. Um, probably as a student. And uh, I, don't, I don't know when it happened. Um, but most of the books in my, you know, on my shelf probably have notes in them. I used to feel um, very protective over the books. I didn't want the covers creased. I didn't want marks. I didn't want the pages bent. You know, I wanted my library pristine. But then you know, that was probably at an earlier time when maybe the books represented something I wanted to be rather than something I was using for me. And um, now they, they really are my books. And, you know, and that'll be cool, I imagine, you know, if my kids ever do decide they are interested in books, um, it would be interesting for them to, to go find those notes and see what I was thinking. And by the way, the notes may make no sense, but, um, but they do to me. Oh, I, I would love if I was one of your kids being able to go back and, and see those notes. That must be absolutely fascinating if they ever do uncover that and do that. What type of books are you reading right now? I, I know we're kind of going off on this rabbit hole, but I'm so fascinated by your process here and then also what you're enjoying. God, what am I reading? So I, um, after Philip Roth passed away, I sort of went back to Roth and, and, and read a bunch of the Zuckerman novels. Um, so I read The Counterlife, and then I read The Ghost Rider, and then I read Zuckerman Unbound. I sort of went through a, a fit. Um, pick, I've picked up in the past few months some some books I'd read in college that I hadn't read in, you know, 25 years. I reread The, the Stranger, Camus, a translation I hadn't read before. Um, I mean, I'd read uh, the book, but I read a different translation. And then from Camus, I went and read um, Emmanuel Bove's My Friends, this beautiful little French novel and a largely forgotten French novelist who who had been a really important writer to people like Samuel Beckett and Jean Genet and just this gorgeous, gorgeous book. Um, so I do stuff like that. I'm trying to think what else have I read. I went through a phase not long ago of uh, philosophy reading. So, you know, my wife came home one night and there was a Amazon package waiting at the door and it, you know, it was Hannah Arendt's <laughs> Origins of Totalitarianism. And she just sort of looked at me like, are you kidding right now? I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, that, that kind of stuff. There's no, there's no logic to it. I mean, maybe there's some internal logic I can't articulate, but it's just wherever my, wherever my taste goes. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there needs to be any logic. And I, I know we kind of got away from your career and I'd like to jump back to that. So you kind of mentioned how you were transitioning during your time at college and then how did you really crack it into the, in the book industry? Well, I got lucky. Um, <laughs> I got, I got lucky by being in the right place at the right time. So I was doing this internship. Um, I think the woman who, so I'm at FSG, this larger than life character, Roger Strauss was the was the, I don't know if you'd call him the publisher, but he, was, he he owned it, you know, and he had sold it a few years earlier to a to a German company, but he was still there, and he had this executive assistant who became a, a, a mentor to me named Peggy Miller, and Peggy took a shine to me, and she, this position opened up, and um, and I was offered a job, so I took it, you know, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, um, and I was there for about three years. When um, when my phone rang and I had an opportunity to work at uh, what was then a brand new um, 
leg of Barnes & Noble called barnesandnoble.com. Um, and this online books was a new thing. And, um, and so and Amazon had only just launched and they, you know, weren't really, you know, anything to speak of. Nobody quite knew what that world would would you know grow into and so i took this job as a as an editor there and so i did a couple of different things at bnn.com for for 2 years um and and i actually learned more about being a publicist in that job because publicists at the publishers were pitching me i used to do these these live author chats um, and it's hilarious because I would be, nobody was online at the time. This is 1998, 99. And so, you know, young people were, but certainly the authors largely weren't. And I would, I would have a headset and I'd be on the phone, uh, with a writer wherever they were. And I would ask them the questions that were coming in. And then I would have to type in their answers in real time. Um, I do not type correctly. So I also, as I said, I was a drummer in a band. So I type percussively, loudly and incorrectly, but quickly. Um, I couldn't tell you where the letters are, but I can actually type without looking, but I don't know where the letters are. It's just kind of muscle memory. Um, and so I would do that, but the funniest part about that is is that we would we would what we called pump the cue before the before the chats because if you had a writer who wasn't very famous, um, you know nobody might show up, and so. Barnes & Noble took all these chats down, but if you were able to find them somehow on the internet and you looked at these transcripts, you would see all the names, these fake names. They were all people I grew up with and they were from, <laughs> and all the cities they were from were like the major independent book markets where I had sent our authors on book tour at FSG. So, so it'd be like, you know, Mark Wolf from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you know, or like all this fake stuff. And, and the, and, and the real bummer, about it was that I believe I gave the very last interview to Patrick O'Brien. Um, he did the, 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 those, there was a, what was it called? Um, he did this great series, Aubrey something or other, this whole genius naval series. People who are fans of his will, you know, want to impale me for not knowing enough about it. But nevertheless, he was ill when he came to New York. He was supposed to come in the office and he couldn't do it. And so I had to fax him these questions to his hotel and he wrote his answers by hand and faxed them back. And so I believe in his own hand, I have the very, um, the very last interview Patrick O'Brien ever gave. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how you mentioned barnesandnoble.com, the start of Amazon. No one even really knew what that was. And I'm thinking about you and how you've been in your current role since 2013. How much has the industry even changed just since then? Um, so much. The, the For starters, Amazon. Um, but, you know, we, when I was at FSG, we had one dial-up computer with an AOL account for the whole company. Um <laughs> And um, and there was no external email. And so when I learned how to do my job as a publicist, you know, I was making phone calls. And when you were pitching a book, you know, you would follow up with reviewers or producers in radio or TV one by one. You know, you'd dial their number and you'd speak with the producer and you had about 30 seconds to make your case, right? Now, all the publicists working for me and probably everywhere else, they send these blast emails. You know, it's a really impersonal thing. And so I was forced to learn how to pitch. 
and I was forced to learn how to connect, not just uh, not just to connect with the producer or editor who you're speaking with, but to get a feel for the taste they have, so that you know if you're calling them for an appropriate book. Um, because there's nothing that irritates a producer more than being called about an author or a guest they would never ever have on the show. I mean, they will literally say, "Have you ever watched our show?" We would never do that. Um, and so, knowing those kinds of things is very useful. Um, I, I, I went for a coffee. The very first time I took somebody out for a pitch meeting um, was an editor at Bomb Magazine, who's now a dear friend of mine. But at the time, I remember I went with my catalog. I didn't even know I could T&E, and I didn't know I could expense the coffee. I paid out of my own pocket. And, um, and we sat down for our coffee, and I started going through the catalog. And about four pages in, she literally reached over across the table and slammed my catalog closed. And she said, I can read that myself, you know. Um, what do you think? Tell me what you think. What should I be reading? And, um, and that's when something else clicked, you know, something new clicked about how to do my job, which was that the job actually was, just like the books were about me, um, pitching these books was about me. What did I connect with? And what I learned over time, I mean, I'm kind of speeding this process up, but what I learned over time was that if I could find one true thing and, and you know, if I didn't like the book, maybe I just liked the author or maybe there was a different book I loved or maybe there was a different book I understood even if I didn't understand this one. Whatever it was I could talk about honestly, I'm in. Um, because as soon as there was something I genuinely connected with and I wasn't lying. Um, and and that, was a, that was a revelation for me in terms of selling. What about unique skill sets? I mean, you've had a, a long career and obviously certain things like you just mentioned really come out. And, and I think you've been able to articulate and identify what might be your unique skill sets. Anything you think right now that you're really hitting at home on? <laughs> you know, probably easier to see from without than from within. Um, probably part of it is, is that I genuinely love it. Um, that helps. I mean, in terms of my skill sets, I mean, I could talk my way out of a paper bag for better or worse. Um, that probably doesn't hurt. Um, I might look a little younger than I actually am. That doesn't hurt. Um, you know, I don't know what my skills are. I mean, the, the sad truth is those of us in, in publishing often joke with each other that we actually have no skills. You know, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, you know, he's an ear, nose, the throat guy. He does surgery. You know, he takes cancers out of people's necks. That's a skill. Um, my, my other brother-in-law, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a lawyer for a big multinational, um, you know, uh, working out of Hong Kong, you know, he's got skills, uh, me, I'm not quite sure what mine are, but, um, but you know, don't tell my boss that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what, what about finding the skills and, and I, and, and vetting the people that are in the authors you might actually be bringing on? What, what's that process like? Uh, as an editor, yeah. uh, that begins with the material. Um, and it begins with having a, a connection to it, you know, so here's the thing, and whether it's as a, as a, as a teacher or as an editor, um, usually within a few pages, you, you have a feel, you know, for whether the person um, is doing something with purpose. And, and I guess what I mean by that is like um, whether um, – whether the person knows knows why they're doing something, what's the question they're asking? You know, is the question a question of structure? Is it a question of character? Is it a philosophical or political question? But you know, the book would be the answer to that, right? There's not a one one. There's not a simple answer, but um, but the book should have some purpose, something the writer is genuinely interested in. And you can tell whether the writer knows what the book is seeking to address right out of the gate. 
Um, you can also tell right out of the gate whether there's a genuine voice. Um, I worked very closely with uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, columnist and commentator and generally larger-than-life you know, personality. And Christopher used to say, um, you know, anyone who can speak um, can write, but how many of us can really speak? Um, and I guess what he was getting at is, you know, the best writing feels, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of space in between the writer and the voice. Now, in fiction, that may not be the writer's personality, but the voice of whatever character the writer is creating um, is it feels real and it feels true. And certainly in nonfiction, that's true. You know, so voice drives it. Anyway, so. That's the first thing. Um, and then you need to see if a writer can carry it to the end. And then you have the editorial component, which is forgetting the business side of it. Once you've actually spoken or met with a writer, um, making sure that the two of you um, share a vision. And, and that isn't to say that I have a vision I want to impose on what somebody else is doing. It's, it's to say, do I understand what the writer is trying to do? And can I help that writer r realize um, that vision? Um, forgetting my aesthetic, forgetting what I might do in, in his or her shoes. Do I know what this writer is trying to do? And can I help them get there? Um, you know, I had a writer uh, submit a novel to me two years ago or an, he, through an agent. So the agent submitted this novel and I felt that the novel was submitted prematurely. You know, I didn't think the novel was done. Um, and the writer and I spoke um, and the writer was in the end unable to find a publisher. And I, before he was unable to find a publisher, I had spoken with the agent and I said, listen, if you can't find the deal you're looking for, um, I would love to speak with your writer, and if and if he and I share a vision, I I will write this guy a full editorial memo, um, on on um, but but I, on condition that I get I get the revised exclusive, which is no commitment to buying it, but you know I'll put in that time and that work, but you send it back to me only, and then we'll find our way. You know, assuming he's done what I think he needs to do, um, we'll make a deal. And that wound up happening. And even after that, the writer and I had about four or five more drafts. Um, now he did the lion's share of the work, but I was really sort of in his corner, you know, um, his cut man, you know, just sort of, you know, getting the bruises down on his cheeks and, you know, making sure his hands were nice and greased and making sure the, 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 the project worked. Um, and we formed a really close partnership. And so that's, that's kind of the editorial ideal editorial process. But a lot of these things, unfortunately, like in any business, will will come down to money. Um, there's a writer who I know very well who recently had a novel on submission. And she um, and I've edited her before, um, and she left her publisher. I'm in a place. I'm in a different. I'm in a different house now. I edited her somewhere else, and you know this novel came around and it went out to a number of editors, and two or three of us were the you know last editors standing in the auction. And at this point, you know, it came down to probably equal money all over the place, and another editor, you know, made a better case than I had. Um, and you just have to live with that. You know, I, I, whatever it was, I didn't connect with, um, I didn't connect with, and it's not all, it's not all success. You know, you, you, you take some, you take some on the chin and it stings for a bit and, and you, you know, you go out and you find more. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your street smarts really came through with that deal you structured. I'm curious, what's the most polished and impressive first draft of a book you've ever received where you're reading it and you're just blown away? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Probably it would be on some book I didn't win, but I'm actually working with um, 
you know, the, the most recent that comes to mind is I'm working with a writer named Siri Hustvet. Um, Siri is a, a novelist. She's also this really um, kind of leader in in thinking on neurobiology um, and neuroscience, so unrelated to her fiction, you know, and she's just this sort of amazing um, intellectual character. So she's, you know, uh, not an old woman, but not a young woman, and she's been writing for, you know, a couple of decades now, and she's got maybe, what, six novels um, behind her, and she recently, I, I have worked with her here at Simon & Schuster, and she recently submitted um, her most recent novel, and, you know, it came to me, and it just really didn't need work. <laughs> it was like, it, it just didn't. Um, you know, she, she had done all the work and she didn't do it in isolation. She has very trusted readers. Her husband is a novelist, Paul Auster. He's a close reader. There's probably other readers she leans on. And at this point in her career and at this point in her, you know, experience as an artist, um, she's not looking for that contribution from an editor. What she's looking for is an editor who understands what she's doing and who can advocate. And advocating in that case means both in-house with my publicity department and our sales department and our marketing departments and of course out-house with out-of-house with our bookseller, you know, our friends in the bookselling community and in the media. Um, she needs she needs somebody to fight on her behalf, not necessarily to get the work where she wants it to be. You know, people have different needs. I mean, I definitely want to hear about some of the other books that are coming out that, that you're working on, but I also want to know about your routine. And earlier you mentioned you wake up incredibly early. The listeners are always fascinated by people's routine. What's your morning look like? How do you structure your day for success? Okay. So <laughs> this morning I got up at 4.30. Um, I had coffee. I went downstairs and looked. Um, first, I just sat and had my coffee, um, and then I looked at uh, looked at the times. Are you fanatical uh, about your coffee? I am fanatical about my coffee. Let's hear about I this am then. not somebody. <laughs> I am not somebody who sets the timer. Um, part of my coffee routine is actually getting up and having to make it. That that gets me in the mode. I also have these two cats. You know, they came with my wife. Um, they are not young. I should love them more than I do. Um, they deserve better than me, but you know, they're very, they're old and they're whiny and they're irritating. So I have to deal with them. I feed them, you know, um, look at the times. And then this morning I went for a swim. So I went to a community center in our town where they have a 5:30 AM, um, lap pool. So, you know, I and the other 70-year-olds were there swimming. <laughs> I am not 70, for your listeners' uh, <laughs> information. Um, and so I swam for, what, 40 minutes or so. Came home. Uh, the, the kids were up before my wife, and so I made them breakfast. I cleaned the sink, you know, cleared out the sink of all its dishes, because last night when I got home it was late and we didn't do that. I thought I would be a nice husband and take care of that. So I did that, and then I had to get ready to go, and my wife wanted to work out, but I didn't have time because I needed to get here. So we did that thing, um, and uh, and then I got to work, you know, and I take the train. So Metro North, uh, for me, is a really good opportunity to read. So I have uh, actually an option manuscript on submission right now. So a writer I have edited um, sent, sent uh, his, you know, a pressy for his new novel, um, and so I'm reading that. And then I get to work and it's, you know, now it's now it's back in media mind. And the project I'm focused on um, at present is in a few weeks, uh, we'll be publishing Bob Woodward's new book on the Trump administration. Um, 
And so that, as you might imagine, is a, a, a fairly consuming um, campaign, um, and it's a very protected one. And so it's an em embargoed book. Um, I am uh, very popular right now with people in the media because everybody would like a copy or an interview with Bob when we publish in September. Um, and, uh, and the stakes are very high, not only from a publishing perspective, um, because of the opportunity um, for sales um, and visibility that the imprint has. Um, Bob Woodward has been published by Simon & Schuster now for 47 years, I believe. Um, All the President's Men was published here. And in fact, his editor, Alice Mayhew, is still here. She published that first book. She's published all 19 of his books. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot riding on it, and I feel a great responsibility both to him and to the imprint. Um, but also at stake, of course, is, um, is something much um, harder to articulate, but, um, but anybody paying attention to the news, you know, would intuit. Um, you know, Bob, Bob Woodward is the preeminent um, White House reporter of our time, um, and maybe of all time. Um, and so, um, you know, he's done his work, and I, and I need to show up for him. Wow. Absolutely fascinating how you just blended that all together there. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you if they want to stay on top of what you're publishing and what you're working on? Uh, well, first and foremost, I mean, you could see what Simon & Schuster is doing on our website. Um, we have a very active Instagram and um, and social media accounts on Facebook. Uh, I'm sure somebody's handling Twitter. Um, your listeners may find it interesting to know that for somebody who encourages all of his writers and all of the people who report to him to be active and engaged in their social media, I myself have no social media accounts, with the exception of LinkedIn. And probably if you try to reach me on LinkedIn, you're not going to get a response because I don't really pay attention. <laughs> um, so, so because I'm so outward facing during the day, um, I really try not to be outward facing in my, in my private life. A funny story about that before we go. I had a, a producer I worked with at CNN. Uh, this would have been 2006. And this producer called me one day and she said, you know, Carrie, I've been looking for you on Facebook and I, and I don't see you there. Um, you should you should get on Facebook. Um, and I said, well, why, why should I get on Facebook? She said, well, so we can be friends. I said, well, what, what does that mean? You know, I didn't understand. She said, well, you know, I would know what you're reading. I'd know what you were working on. I'd know who you were connected to. And I said, Deb, I said, y you have me. I'm on the phone. What would you like to know? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you everything. You, um, you know, I'm not keeping it a secret. What do you want? I'll tell you. Um, I just, you know, may, may, maybe like where we started this conversation with a, with a bit of introversion, you know, maybe that's just a little too much for me to handle. So. <laughs> oh, Carrie, I, I've absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I really do hope at some point we can do a round two because there's so many things that, that you brought up I would love to uncover with you. But I, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. And we're definitely going to be following along and seeing what you're up to next. That's great, Sean. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, and I hope we get to talk again. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. 
Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.